0: What do we mean by coherent thinking? We have an expression that we use of certain people. It's not a very nice term, uh, but we use it anyway. In fact, it's a rather put-down term. Um, But it might be very true. We say of some people, well, he or she is a scatterbrain. (laughs) Scatterbrain. Scatterbrain describes a person who just doesn't seem to be able to put two thoughts together in a cohesive, organized way so as to make sense to the average listener. This type of person may run thoughts together. Tomorrow I will be out shopping most of the day. The car needs an oil change. What does that mean? Well, let me give you some possibilities. I'm going shopping, and while I'm out and about, I will get an oil change in the car. Or I'm going shopping tomorrow, and it would be good if you got the oil change on the car today. Or I'm going shopping tomorrow so you will not be able to get the oil change done on the car because I will have the car all day. Or, I'm going to go shopping tomorrow and when I'm out and about I will buy some oil for the car so that when I get home you can get the oil change done. Now you see, if you're the listener and you just had that little bit of information, You might be in a fog as to what is being said because not enough of the dots have been connected to give a true picture of the meaning. Sometimes scatterbrains are pretty good at saying what they mean, but then they forget what they said they were going to do and they can't seem to keep track of their own agenda. I'm going shopping all day tomorrow, and while I'm out and about, I will buy some oil so that you can do the oil change on the car when I get home. But when they come home from shopping, they have no oil, because they forgot to buy it, and they say, why would I buy the oil? You're the one that always does the oil change. Ladies, listen up. It is very frustrating to live with a person like that because the problem is that they're not organized in their thought processes. They have not disciplined themselves to think in a logical, sequential, cohesive, coherent way. The thoughts just seem to pop into the head at will and they might just as easily pop out in the very next moment and go, huh? You know, confusion is the watchword of such, and people like this also create a great deal of their own confusion for those who are trying to communicate with them. Now, secondly, one of the problems in this area is that we are too busy. Too busy. It's not that we couldn't put thoughts together in a logical and sequential way, but we speak in random bits and bytes, just like computers, because we're too busy. We're too preoccupied. Dad is reading the newspaper with one eye. He's watching the news on TV with the other eye. He's listening to his wife say something with his ears. And he's answering the kids question with his mouth and he's paying attention to no one. That's life. Just busy, busy. Well, he's likely to tell his kids, yes, I like the black negligee. That's the one I like the best. And he might say to his wife, no, you may not draw on the side of the washer with the crayons. Another problem is that some people are just not very sure of their own thoughts. They're not sure that they are right in their assessments. They, they, they seem to lack confidence in their own analysis of life, and so they seldom take a definitive stand. A friend calls you up and says, um, how would you like to go out for dinner after church? And you say, Sure. You choose. The friend says, well, I'll meet you at 11.30 for dinner at Applebee's. And unless you think that's too early, if you think 11.30 is too early, we could make it a little bit later. If you don't like Applebee's, we could go to E.G. Nick's. Or if you prefer fish, we could drive to Davison over to see Whitey's restaurant. I wonder if they're open on Sunday. By the time you wade through all this chatter and disconnected indecisiveness, you're ready to pull out your hair and you shout, just make a decision. Just make a decision. These are things which are not automatically corrected once we become a Christian. These are patterns of behavior which we have developed through the years and it may be the way we are now but it needs to change and what is more it can change. Now you might ask why does it need to change? I mean, why can't people just accept me for the scatterbrain brain that I am? What is important about having a cohesiveness of thought as a Christian? I'm functioning, aren't I? I do eventually get my message across. There's no crime in being disorganized, is there? Well, apart from the fact that we may come across as a doofus when we really are quite capable, we learned in our last study that we're to make every thought captive to Christ. Let me ask this, is Jesus a scatterbrain? Would he be honored by our lack of cohesive thinking? Is his reputation enhanced or is it besmirched by the things that just pop into our heads and come out of our mouths without much thought? And how good is it for us to be disconnected in thought? and word. Might this be simply a reflection on a totally undisciplined way of living. We observe in our text that the apostles' goal in writing to the Colossian believers, among other things, verse 2, that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Notice all these words that deal with knowledge and knowing and and being on top of things. Thinking cohesive thoughts is important to understand God. In the wisdom of God who is Christ. It's important so that we are not deceived with fine sounding but shallow arguments. Verse 4 that's mentioned in our text. And how were the Colossians faring in all of this? Well, look at verse 5. Paul says, I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm Your faith in Christ is. One follows the other, you see. Orderly thought leads to firm faith. But wishy-washy thinking leads to a tenuous, doubtful, fearful faith that changes with every wind of doctrine that comes down the pike. I'm sorry to say, but I think that's where a lot of Christians are today. We're going to be getting into the deep depth of this in Dan's study in the adult class. Living in Christ-centered consciousness of the cross. Now in the twin epistle to Colossians in Ephesians 4 and verse 12 and following, it explains that one reason Christ gives ministers to his church is, let me read it for you, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become Mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now I've accentuated all those words because don't you see what Paul is doing? He's piling them up. Unity, maturity, fullness. They're almost synonymous But just from a little different angle. And he's saying that's why he gives ministers to his church. All right, then that brings us to the question what is the measure of maturity in Christ? How do we know that we're mature in Christ? How do we know that we have grown up sufficiently so that we are united in faith and we have experienced fullness in Christ? Well, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 14 and following, we will no longer be infants. Well, that's one thing. Tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men, in their deceitful scheming. There's there's one way. That's a good way. That you know that you're growing up and maturing in the faith. The mark of maturity, can I say it this way, is stability. Stability in knowledge and assurance of faith. We stop believing everything we are told. Just because the person speaking knows how to use God words like, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, I love God. Or because he or she quotes Bible verses in stating their case. You know that the devil knows how to quote Bible verses. You can read it in Matthew chapter 4. Part of the cunning and craftiness employed by deceitful schemers is to use Christian lingo to promote devilish concepts. Satan transforms himself into an angel of light so that he can deceive the people of the light. And when we are deceived it is because we have not come to a maturity in our thought processes. We have not come to fullness in Christ. Now it's important here that we understand the value of logic. I'm not talking about human philosophy. I'm talking about a gift that God gives to people that I can say it this way, the animals don't have. But human beings have it. It separates us from the beasts of the field. Human reasoning, human logic. One of the basic principles of logic is that two opposing viewpoints cannot, listen now, cannot both be true at one and the same time. The earth and all things in it was created by God in six days by the empowerment of God's spoken and creative word Verses, okay, the earth was formed out of nothing but became something when a cloud of gases exploded which led to one-cell creatures which eventually divided and redivided into amoebas and then fish and then reptiles and then fowl and then mammals on on up the evolutionary chain until we come to man. Now Brethren, both of these scenarios cannot be true. One of them is false. How do we know this? Because one deals with design and order and thought and decision of the will of an intelligent being, and the other deals with randomness, chance, chaos, happenstance, irrationality, order out of chaos, design out of chance, something from nothing, life from non-life. Now if we begin to falter here, and there have been Christians that have done this, on this issue, I might add we begin to falter here, well they're just theories aren't they? Then we are in danger of being taken captive, verse 8 of our text, through hollow and deceptive philosophies which depend on human tradition and basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. In creation versus evolution we depend on the God who was there rather than on the man who was not there to tell us about origins. Both systems rely on faith, but evolution relies on faith in man and his traditions. Man's science can substantiate evolution, so it is thought. Science being the investigation of what is, followed by verification, proves that Is wrong thinking. And what science is actually doing in our day is proving creation. But the diehards won't let the godless theory die. Well, if there is a creator, here's the point. Man is suddenly responsible as his creature and must give an account to him. But what higher life form gives an account to an amoeba or a fish? Men prefer the evolutionary theory of origins because the top of the food chain and the top of accountability ends with man. Man is the measure of all things in that system, not God. This is very comforting. Man calls his own shots but he is also self-deceived. It's to bury one's head in the sand concerning a very well-designed world with intricate, complex infrastructures, not the least of which is the human body. The psalmist says, I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Wonderfully in the old sense of how they use wonderful. Full of wonder. I am fearfully and full of wonder made. Your works are full of wonder. I know that very well. Psalm 139, verse 14. Now, notice, this is not, it is not a scientific explanation of the human body, but a very accurate one nonetheless. Because the Bible couches its explanations of life in historical or poetic or simple descriptive language, does not detract from the truth that God conveys in such language. God is not interested in explaining the science of things, but rather in explaining life to the average citizen so that we can function in the world that he created as creatures rightly related to him as creator. If, as was true of me, that I had to have an emergency appendectomy, it may have been fascinating to know how my surgeon would cut open my abdomen, locate the appendix, extract it. But when that appendix burst, before the surgery was completed, it was far more important for me to know the Lord heals all your diseases. Psalm 103 verse 3, as I laid in that hospital bed for three weeks with an abdomen filled with life-threatening deadly poison from the bowel. Successful surgery, yet a deathly sick patient needs to know of the healing power of Almighty God. This is the Bible's approach to all of life. God addresses man's heart issues, his fears, his longings, his guilty conscience because of sin, his estrangement from God and men, his bitterness, his skepticism, all of these things. Now it isn't that God is ignorant of the science of life. He knows the science is there and it'll take care of itself. For he created all the laws which allow science to work. But God is more concerned with those whom he created in his own image. And for his own glory. God loves his people. And wrote the Bible that we may know and love him. That is where he's working. On our soul, our conscience, our heart. So cohesive thinking... Logic plays an important part in all of that. How do we learn to think coherently? What are we to do? Well, in this text, in Colossians 2, Paul gives an exhortation in verse 6, and it contains two elements. So then, he says, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Having received Christ as Savior and Lord, we're to continue in Him and to live our lives with due reflection on His will and His work for our lives. And what is to be the emphasis? Well, he mentions two dimensions rooted in Christ, and secondly, build up in Christ. Both of them found in verse 6. Rooted. You know, roots are very important. They give stability to a tree. They enable a tree to stand tall. It's a general principle that the height of a tree is determined by its root structure. And it's generally proportionate to the depth of its roots. So when you see that tall oak, it's a reasonable assumption that there is as much tree below the surface of the ground as is above. Horticulturalists instruct us to stake are newly planted trees because guess what? They've been dug up by a machine from their roots that they've been cut off. Therefore, they're susceptible to high winds and soil erosion and flood and the like. But everyone knows that even though you put down the props, they're a poor substitute for roots. I'm sure you've seen this. You've gone by and some people are working on landscaping and usually it's, it's a three-point attachment. Wires going out from the tree or bush staked in the ground and you don't have to go any further. You just know that's a newly planted tree. It hasn't been there very long. We just hope that by staking our young trees they will remain stable long enough for new roots to sprout and reestablish the holding power of the original root system. Roots are very important. Well the Christian life is such that there are many forces tearing at our fixation on Christ. The media, entertainment, materialism, hollow and deceptive philosophies which Paul mentions in verse 8 of our text. These all pull at us to let go of our root. Through intimidation, through fear, through mockery, through persecution, threats, sneers, the world tells us that we're fools to be Christians. That we're missing out on the good things of life. That we're old-fashioned, we're outdated, we're obsolete. Get with it. And not only that, but of late, of late, Christians are being described as a plague upon society because of our tenacious hold to the Bible and to a Jesus who is dead and gone and can't help anybody anyway. That's the way the world looks at it. There's a town in, it was just on the news this week, there's a town in Texas that has passed an ordinance that no Christian can run for public office. Now how can they do that? That's a violation of the First Amendment. Well, they're doing it. And I'm sure there'll be court challenges, but that gives you an idea where they're at. We don't want any Christians in the public office. We don't want them making our rules and making our laws and voting on this and voting on that. Now because of all of this, Paul tells us that we must be rooted in Christ and ever seeking to be deeply rooted. You say, well, I've received Christ as my Savior. Well, that may be true. Paul says that that's a given. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted in Him. So he does state that. You, yeah, I know you've received Christ. But you know, while beginnings are important, they're not nearly so important as endings. Many begin well in Christ but not all end with Christ remember Christ's parable of the soils three of the four soil the four soil types had some some root in Christ Let me read about the rocky soil. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, at least not a deep root, he lasts only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Matthew 13, verse 20 and 21. So here's a a person, he gets the word about Christ, he accepts it, he receives it. Happy, happy. He's out of here. What about the thorny soil? The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it making it unfruitful. Matthew 13, verse 22. So again, some reception of the word, some belief in Christ. But boy, when when things get tough, and cares come, and worries come, somehow, Christ isn't the answer anymore. I got to do this on my own. I got to get with it. Now, compare that with the good soil. The one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word, now get it, and understands it. Hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop. Yielding a hundred sixty or thirty times what was sown. Matthew 13 verse 23. We learn from all of this that it is not sufficient to just have some root in Christ. To be shallow rooted is as insecure as no root. Maybe you have witnessed this. I have. Sometimes in early spring it rains so much in early spring that a crop of freshly planted corn will sprout if it doesn't rot it will sprout and it will grow very quickly because there is an abundance of rain the corn stalk do not have to work hard to get water water is everywhere so a shallow root system develops on the surface. Then comes July and after that August. First little rain then no rain. And this shallow rooted corn will literally fail to develop its ears and will burn up on the stock. Why? That's because the roots never ran deep. They never went far enough down into the soil to weather the time of drought. Do you know that Christians can be like that? While things are well with us, we drink of Jesus. We're happy to know Him. We satiate our thirst with the plentiful milk of the word. But the day comes when the hot blasts of trouble blow against us, and without a deep root, many shrivel up and die. Others are choked by the world and its attractions. And in both cases, there's no fruitful yield like the good soil. And Jesus has taught us, by their fruits. It's by their fruits you shall know them the false from the true, not by what they say, not by their professions, but by their lives. I have to say that corn stalks standing on a shallow root system is still corn. I mean it has the wide blade of corn, it has the center stalk like corn, it may even begin to develop the ear and the husk around like corn, but without the kernels of corn, without the fully developed ears, without the corn grain, the fruit, what is it good for? Fodder. That's what it's good for. Which men gather into sheaves and burn. To obtain coherent thinking as a Christian, we have to run roots deep into Christ. It was only the good soil of whom Jesus said, he hears the word and he understands it. If you do not have a good understanding of the word of God, you are yet shallow rooted and may be unattached completely from Christ. And this could explain why you're a scatterbrain when it comes to understanding and applying the gospel. Got to be serious about our attachment to Christ. So the first part of the exhortation that Paul gives here is this. You need a deep root system. You need to be rooted deeply into Christ. The second part of the Positive exhortation, not only deeply rooted in Christ, but built up, I'm reading scripture, built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. Top growth, as we have noted, is proportionate to bottom growth. No deep root in Christ, no great fruitfulness for Christ. There's, more, there's to be more than growth which no one can verify. Roots. And while roots are important, while they are essential, they are not why people grow crops. No farmer ever planted an orchard full of apple trees or pear trees or peach trees and what. So he could say, you know, underneath... All of those trees, I know there is an intricate and strong root system. No horticulturalist ever says that. No, he plants fruit trees expecting a mature top growth. And that maturity is measured by when that begins to produce fruit. One of the reasons the dwarf uh, fruit trees were developed by the horticulturalists Was that they begin producing fruit in three to five years as opposed to a standard tree which takes five to ten years. So they wanted fruit faster. They came up with dwarf trees. Here's a serious question. How long have you been planted in Christ? Where's your fruit for him? What's the nature of your fruit? Is it shriveled up, wormy, scabbed over, diseased, blighted, sour tasting? Verse 6, Paul says, faith is to be strengthened. It's to be strengthened. That's just another way of saying that faith is to grow. You know, there's all kinds of faith. There's initial faith, tenuous faith, hesitant faith, Baby-like faith, confident faith, mature faith, and of course, no faith. Which of these describes you? How does a believer become strong in faith? It's by being convinced that you are not short-changed in life as a believer in Christ, as the Lord of your life, verse 6. How so? Verse 9 and following. In Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ. Who is the head over every power and authority. I could say it this way. When you have Christ. You have the supreme majesty of the universe. There's none greater or wiser or more gifted or more able to help or more to be feared. Every other authority exists and functions only at His will. And by His cross, verse 15 of this text, tells us Jesus disarmed the powers and the authorities that we so much dread. And verse 14, has dealt with our inner demons of sin and rebellion that kept us at arm's length from reconciliation with our holy God. To have Christ is to have it all. All wisdom, all hope, all assurance of being on the right track, all peace in a world of turmoil, all confidence. No wonder Paul says that as we mature in Jesus, we will be overflowing, verse 7, with thankfulness. Thankfulness. Because you got something your neighbors do not have. Thankfulness. Did you know that thankfulness is a sign of maturity? I know you know this. Thankfulness is a sign of maturity. You ever notice how kids are never thankful? Or seldom thankful? They always seem to want more or the thing that the other kid has, but when they get it, they still are discontent. Well, childlike Christians evidence a restlessness too. Never satisfied, never content Ever learning, but not coming to the truth. God doesn't want that for your life. Cohesive thinking is rooted in Christ and it is strengthened in Christ. He is our wisdom. And any wisdom which cannot be traced to Him is of this world, which is passing away. So you want... Peace of heart and peace of mind. You need to be rooted in Christ and then as a result of being rooted in Christ, you need to grow up in Christ and keep maturing in Christ. And then when all of the bad things in life that come your way, and they are going to come your way, we're not immune from those things, you will have a solid foundation, a solid root system to hold you fast in the time of storm. Jesus taught it a little differently when he talked about the building on the rock as opposed to the sand, but it's the same kind of concept. I'm talking about trees and roots because that's what Paul is talking about in our text. So where do you stand with regard to Christ this morning? Rooted in Christ, growing up in Christ, or just kind of slipperily attached to Christ? hanging on but you know trouble comes we let go we're gone we're lost to our lusts. we're lost to our sin we're lost to the philosophies of men oh God save us from ourselves Lord Jesus thank you for the fact that you have called us into a relationship with you a relationship means that You are important to us. You are our friend and savior and confident and comforter. You are our strength, our wisdom, our know-how. The pilot of our life. And we depend upon you. This is very good. This is where we should be. But are we? that's my question are we thankful I praise Christians that we are we're so blessed we always have the gimmies, always wanting more always looking for the next pot of gold not content with your blessings we discount the spiritual blessings looking for more material Forgive us, Lord, for not seeing in you the great riches of glory. We're like Israel of old. The bread from heaven fed their souls, but they said, we are sick of this light bread. There are professing Christians, I think, in our country that are sick of hearing about the gospel of grace. The gospel call to repentance and faith. The gospel call to holiness of life. They're sick of that. They want fun and games. Lord, don't let us go that route. No, those are the lies of Satan. The angel of light. The angel of darkness transforming himself into an angel of light. Giving us philosophy for gospel. Thank you for Paul's writing, for his boldness, to call a spade a spade, to bring us up short and to point us to the way of coherent thinking. If we're disjointed in our thoughts, if we are somewhat scatterbrained, forgive us. It's due to an dis- undisciplined life. Help us to get our act together for the glory of Jesus and for our own good. Amen.